May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be in all ways acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Years ago, I read a book by Fred Beekner that offered this advice about scripture. Don't start looking in the Bible for the answers it gives. Start by listening for the questions it asks. Here are a few, for example. Am I my brother's keeper? That's from Genesis. Who is my neighbor? Luke. What are you looking for? Do you want to get well? What is truth? The Gospel of John. Beekner goes on to say this. When you hear the question that is your question, then you have already begun to hear much. Whether you can accept the Bible's answer or not, you've reached the point where at least you can begin to hear it, too. I am particularly grateful for Beekner's advice right now, because our reading from the Gospel of Mark has always been a challenging one for me. My attempts to read it for the answers have been frustrating. But thankfully, it is full of questions, questions that resonate powerfully in my mind and in my heart. The miracle that Mark describes, Jesus' calming of the sea, is one of the most dramatic and familiar in, New Test in the New Testament. The setting of, is the Sea of Galilee, a body of water 680 feet below sea level, surrounded by hills, and it's prone to sudden, violent windstorms. The time is evening. After a long day spent preaching to the multitudes, Jesus is curled up at the stern of a boat, sleeping soundly as the disciples steer the vessel. All at once, the winds pick up, huge waves lash the boat, and the disciples, seasoned fishermen though they are, fear for their lives. In a desperation bordering on fury, they rouse the still sleeping Jesus. Teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? There it is, question one. Don't you care that we are drowning? I know that question far too well to even begin to judge the disciples for asking it. Some Christians, I'm sure, come easily to the belief that Jesus cares for them. Others, for various reasons, do not. Some have been wounded by bad religion. Others have suffered from forms of abuse, emotional, physical, psychological, that make it very hard 
to trust in anyone's goodness, even God's. Others have cried out for help in the midst of life's catastrophes and have experienced only the sleeping Jesus. Intellectually, I know the answer to the question is always yes. Yes, our teacher cares when we are drowning. But as the saying goes, the greatest distance on earth is the distance between our minds and our hearts. So for me, the question is an evolving one. I have to keep living it, facing it, asking it. I can't just tuck the answer into my belt and move on. I've got to hold it before my eyes, day after day. For me, the yes, I care of God is always a promise to grow into. I might imagine that this might be true for some of you. The next two questions come not from the disciples, but from Jesus. After he wakes up, rebukes the wind, and stills the sea, in the deep calm after the storm, he turns to face his bewildered disciples. Why are you afraid? He asks. Do you still have no faith? Why are the disciples afraid? Well, I think that seems pretty obvious. If you've ever nearly drowned, you know what it feels like to experience the panic and terror, the imminence of a painful death, struggling for air, gulping water, choking. When I was about four years old and on a family camping trip to the Colorado River, my sister and I ventured out to the shore And the next thing we knew, there we were, sucked under the swirling water. I'll never forget the feel of it. Unable to make my way to the surface. Unable to even make a sound. Thankfully, my uncle caught sight of this. In a split second, he dove in after us. And I can still feel the firm grip of his arms hoisting me to the surface and that overwhelming relief of my first gasp of air. I tell this story to only say how I can empathize with the disciples' fear or anyone who's faced a hurricane or tsunami or floods. And if we extend the meaning of drowning to include all the ways in which we humans find ourselves in over our heads, then Jesus' question almost sounds absurd. Of course we're afraid as we face climate change and school shootings, as we watch children of immigrants separated from their families. Of course we're afraid when broken marriages, sick children, unfriendly neighbors, grinding jobs, and financial uncertainty threaten our lives. Of course we're afraid when biology or trauma betray our bodies into anxiety or panic or depression. Why are we afraid? 
because we are human? Because fear is a reasonable response to a frightening world? Because God created us with the capacity to feel fear so that we'll know to pay attention and take measures to protect ourselves. I wish that I had a neat uplifting bow to wrap around this question, but I don't. All I can do right now is hope that Jesus asks it of us in love, not irritation. All I can do is trust that the question is an invitation to be honest with God and with ourselves. So why am I afraid, really? Perhaps because as much as I say I've made peace with my limitations, including my mortality, I really haven't. Or because I'm still coming to terms with the fact that God isn't always going to be my life preserver and that rescuing me from my troubles may not be God's top priority. Maybe I'm afraid because Jesus apparently meant it when he said, take up your cross and follow me. And I'm not sure I'm ready. What about you? The next question is a little easier, at least for me. Do you still have no faith? Well, sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. One of the odd things about today's story is that Mark surrounds it with some perplexing contrasts. In the chapters leading up to the calming of the sea, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as small, secretive, quiet. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, so tiny it's almost invisible, or like a sower scattering seeds, so vulnerable that they're often snatched by birds or choked by weeds. The kingdom of God is like a farmer whose seeds cannot be manipulated. They grow as they please. However, In the chapters that follow our story for today, Jesus reveals a kingdom of dramatic, supernatural power. He casts out demons, raises a little girl from the dead, heals a hemorrhaging woman, walks on water. To have faith, it seems, is to hold these two pictures of the kingdom in tension to allow God to be revealed in both. Yes, sometimes Jesus does demonstrate his power in miraculous, technicolor ways. And I don't think we're wrong to hope for those. At other times, though, Jesus invites us to trust that God's quiet, abiding presence in our lives is enough. Sometimes Jesus' power is paradoxical. It comes in seeming weakness, in quiet whispers, in tiny gestures. The hiddenness of God, in other words, is simply that. Hidden, not absent.
The last question in our story returns us to the disciples. After Jesus calms the storm, we are told, the disciples fear a great fear. It's no longer the elements that terrify them. It's Jesus. Who is this man? They ask each other in awe. Even the wind and the waves obey him. I hope that I will always have the courage to ask that question. That is, to allow Jesus to make himself new to me. Who is this man? Strange, other. The disciples thought that they had Jesus pegged, but they didn't. He was wilder, more powerful, less predictable, and more mysterious than they had yet imagined. When we think we've got Jesus pegged, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. If he's familiar enough to make us either complacent or contemptuous, then it's time to defamiliarize us defamiliarize him. It's time to ask the question once again. Teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Who is this man? When you hear the question that is your question, you have begun to hear much. When you hear the question that is your question, press in close and listen. God is near. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.